This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. And on today's podcast, we're doing something a little different. Instead of focusing on a book, we're actually going to be focusing on an article. And this article is entitled, Armed in the Great Swamp, Fear, Maroon Insurrection, and the Insurgent Ecology of the Great Dismal Swamp. And we'll be chatting with the article's author, Dr. Catherine Benjamin Golden. And Dr. Golden is an assistant professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. And in this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss how Dr. Golden's article went from dissertation into article form with the Journal of African American History to where she is now working on her new book at the University of Delaware. Y'all, this is an amazing conversation that I had so much fun with, and it's a little long, but let me tell you, it is worth every single second. Enjoy, family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Golden. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing excellent, Adam. How are you doing? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, just moved to Philly uh, about, uh, about 10, was it 10, 11 days ago, so uh, oh, wow. And, okay. Yeah, and got and got this grading stuff. I'm sure you know it's a little something about that grading uh, at the end of a semester. I sure do. I'm in the throes right now. Look, so let's shake, rattle, and roll up in this interview. So, uh, first off, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me about your amazing article, "Armed in the Great Swamp: Fear, Maroon Insurrection, and the Insurgent Ecology of the Great Dismal Swamp." And so. You know, I'm so happy to have you on here. But before we begin discussing Armed in the Great Swamp, I want to chop it up first about your own personal journey to this project. And so in 2018, you defended your doctoral dissertation through the muck and mire, marinage, representation, and memory in the Great Dismal Swamp. Tell us about how you came to write a dissertation about marinage at Berkeley. All right. Well, thank you, Adam so very much for this chance to talk with you and to meet here. And I'm looking very much so forward to the day that our paths are going to cross in person. It's looking like soon, I'm hoping. Yes, Um, absolutely. But I'm also just really thankful and honored that, you know, this article is your first journal article to feature here in new books in African-American studies. And the book ain't even out. So just thank you for putting me on and putting this spotlight on the Great Dismal Swamp and all of the tremendous resistance that's taking place there. 
in the 18th and 19th century. So thank you very, very much. Um, I'll just say um, this article is really a condensed consolidation of the ways that I've been thinking about the connection between maradage and bold or overt resistance practices. And that has been a focus that has carried me and motivated me since day one, uh, since I was an undergraduate student at UC Riverside. Um, and I wrote a history paper about the Dismal Swamp in Ralph Crowder, the, the late Ralph Crowder's class on African-American um, history before the Civil War. Um, and that really came out of my interest in the history of Maranage and Maroons more broadly. So um, my dad is an organic intellectual in every sense. You know, he worked for 35 years delivering mail to the post office, for the post office. Um, and he had this rich collection of books spanning Black history from antiquity um, to the present. And one of those books was Richard Price's Maroon Societies, Rebel Slave Communities in the Americas. Um, and I remember reading it and reading through it. I was curious. I was quite young. I was in high school. And um, but that book is, um, I think, the first comprehensive or the it's attempting to look at Maranaj comprehensively um, across the hemisphere, um, across the Americas. And so there's this section on maroons and the Quilombos in Brazil and Palmares. And there's a section on maroons in the French Caribbean. And there's a section on the Spanish colonies, and there's a section on Jamaica, you know, and all of these sections have multiple chapters um, written by various scholars. And they also have primary sources included in these sections. Um, primary sources written by a colonist like John Stedman, who's going into Suriname and documenting his encounters with Maroons. So there's all this really rich material. And, that, and that's really great. That, that, that was um, helpful to understand the power of this history how, you know, this tradition of resistance is a hemispheric one. Um, this is a, really a tradition of African people and African descendants saying, no, we will not remain enslaved. Uh, we all together refuse the system of slavery and the predicament of captivity and bondage. You know, no, we oppose this. We will run. We will fight. We will create different lives or we will create different options. Um, and we're going to force white authority to seriously question the validity of their own power. And so that is really important and empowering history. And that book showed that it occurred everywhere, wherever slavery took place. Uh, but the striking thing about Price's anthology is that there's literally one chapter on the United States. Wow. So, I mean, I was like, well, that that's unfortunate. Where are these maroon communities in the United States? And so that one chapter is Herbert Abdecker's Maroons Within the Present Limits of the United States, where he acknowledges the existence of at least 50 maroon communities um, in the U.S. And he has this tiny paragraph um, about maroons in this place known as the Dismal Swamp. And so I was like, what is this swamp? You know, um, and it's interesting because he says that the swamp was the most noted of all of the United States maroon communities. And I was my response was like, well, why haven't I heard about that? Um, I have some family from Norfolk and the Suffolk, Virginia area, and I asked them very early, you know, what's this dismal swamp? And, and they kind of said, it's just a nasty place. You know, you, you can go fishing there, but this is not, it's just, it's just a swamp. It's nasty. Uh, so it was not a place of any meaning or import to them. Um, but Aptheker says 
that this place had 2,000 Maroons living in there. So that sounded pretty substantial. And so when I got to college, I began digging a little bit deeper. And at that time, there was very little written on the Maroons of the Dismal Swamp. Um, and so I focused that first paper on the kind of guerrilla warfare that these Maroons seem to be engaged in based on the accounts that Aptheker expands on in his um, American Negro Slave Revolt. And um, they're largely drawn from periodicals, local periodicals that are reporting these, these incidents of, of marinage. Um, and so I began with a focus on this kind of constant pressure that Maroons are putting on slaveholding society to be on alarm, uh, to be vigilant against this really relentless uh, force of Maroon attacks and pillage and arson and lurking around these swamp neighborhoods. Um, and then when I got to Columbia University, it was 2009, and I studied under the direction of the late and great Manning Marable at the Institute for Research in African American Studies there. Um, and I continued with this work, and I, I was really committed to continuing to uh, really challenge the idea that the United States just somehow had nothing to do with marinage, um, or that enslaved communities in the United States you know, lacked a kind of resistant spirit enough to create maroon communities or practice marinage, um, or, or that the really intimate paternalistic system of the U.S. South uh, had somehow been successful or been relatively successful at eliminating the chances for maroons to take shape and maroon communities to take shape in the U.S. South. Um, and those ideas were actually written about, and those ideas were, were put on paper by uh, historians like Eugene Genovese. Mm -hmm. And he writes, you know, it would be a courtesy to call the runaways of the U.S. South Maroons huddled in small huts or small, uh, huddled in small units, I think is how he phrased that, as they were. Um, so my master's thesis at Columbia was about the neglect, as I, as I, as I thought of it then, the neglect of the United States Maroons or um, the reasons why it hasn't been taken up seriously or thought about um, in the context of the United States. And those reasons really exceed demographical differences between the U.S. and the Caribbean and Latin America. Because part of why Maroons flourished um, on a grand scale in the Caribbean and Latin America is because of demographical factors like ratios between whites and blacks, you know, ratios between African-born enslaved people and enslaved people born in the Americas, uh, rates of absentee planterism. All of those factors did make favorable opportunities for marinage in the Caribbean. Um, and in Latin America, of course, and that's true. But I think what Maribel helped me to understand, and, and Maribel, he, he really shaped my thinking about marinage, um, memory, and about using the past um, to inspire new futures uh, through the histories that we tell. And so I remember him advising me, and he said, yes, those demographic factors um, helped shape marinage as more prevalent um, outside of the United States, but the reason for the United States Maroons' invisibility and um, continued silences around Maroons and, and their importance in the United States um, exceed those factors uh, is because of this concept that he talked about, the historical logic of whiteness. Mm. And, he, and um, this is essentially saying that racism in historical narration um, that repeatedly minimizes and erases historical narratives um, that threaten white power in the present um, is part of, you know, 
the reasoning behind these some of these omissions and 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 lack of attention to these particular histories. Um, and of course, a history of enslaved people's refusal to accommodate racial capitalism and slavery, you know, and um, this history of their willingness to do so via violence mm-hmm. um, and to creatively come up with alternatives to capitalism and to create alternative lives outside of dominant society and in alternative communities that inherently oppose the state and doing all of these things autonomously in a place like Virginia, the birthplace of democracy and you know our, our national ideals about liberty. The historical logic of whiteness that Marable talked about and that he really actually flushes out in Living Black History, which is a book that has been a guiding light in a lot of my work. Um, but, but he's saying that there is a logic that requires the suppression of all evidence of Black resistance, particularly the boldest forms of it. Um, and that logic follows that this suppression is absolutely essential to uh, the preservation of white dominance. So those kinds of ideas began to shape my thinking. And then when I got to Berkeley, getting get to the, the essence of your question about Berkeley, when I get to Berkeley, my dissertation immediately takes up these questions about historical representations of, of maroons um, and public facing representations of maroons. So questions about visibility, um, questions about silence. And, and why we remember certain narratives and not others um, began to occupy my thoughts. And um, I began to be really interested in public history and the public history of Maranage in the landscape of the current Dismal Swamp. Um, because in part, the central message of his book, Living Black History, is that the narratives that we make visible or that we make invisible on landscapes uh, implicated and shaped by histories of uh, black suffering or black resistance, that those narratives or the way we, we tell those stories tell us about who we are. Uh, they tell us about who we want to be, who we want to become, um, what kind of local or national community or uh, collectivity we desire to become. And so um, not only did this dissertation seek to evidence the extraordinary organized resistance and uh, the actual history of the Maroons, their creative survival and, and the way that they survived and, and struggled in this swamp um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. But I also wanted to take on questions of power and memory mm-hmm. around, around, uh, around, around these histories. So, yeah, so um, I, I completed this dissertation and I, yeah, I, I guess I can stop there. I can say more, but um, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to end up um, by, by sort of, telling you where this chapter or this article that we've read fits into my current work um, and, and the, you know, the continuing evolution of how I'm thinking about this. Um, so, you know, the, my current, my current work now has sort of deviated from that focus on public history and memory. And now, you know, I, I felt really called to sit with the history a little bit more um, mm-hmm. and, that is what I'm doing right now. So the Armed in the Great Swamp is an elaboration of one of my dissertation chapters uh, that was focused on the history of diverse maroon communities that lived there between 1700 and 1865. But it's a deeper look at um, a few of the maroon groups that emerge right around the revolutionary period um, in Virginia and North Carolina. Um, yeah, so... Love it. No, I... 
No, thank you. That that was a very uh, rich and thorough uh, uh, from 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 beginning to where we are now, and I love it uh, because ultimately, um, even before I get to this next comment, the fact that um, I guess two interviews ago, uh, Dr. Tamika Nunley was on talking about her most recent book in the threshold or at the threshold of liberty, and she was also. Uh, a student under the late great uh, Manning Marable as well, so so it's just really interesting. Not only is this uh, uh, Berkeley connection that we got in these last couple of interviews, but also uh, the particular um, the particular love from from Manning Marable, the late great Manning the late great Manning Marable, and and Columbia in general. So definitely got to shout them out uh, and, and all the people over there as well at IRAS as well. Um, and, 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 and part of the reason why I asked about the dissertation question is as, as you know, I'm, you know, writing this dissertation proposal. So my mind is very much like, okay, I'm doing this thing, but also there's going to be a post dissertation life. So, so let me ask these questions of someone who, you know, had finished recently. Um, and so, you know, that's among the many reasons why I had you on to discuss the article. And so, Really, for me, I'm interested in your write, uh, writing and reading habits um, and how they've developed from, you know, your days at, uh, at the, I believe you said UC Riverside to Columbia, Berkeley. You're, you're just dot, you're just going, you know, crossing, you <laughs> I've know, been everywhere. like I no Midwest, but straight East Coast, West yeah. Coast, you know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. so... Yeah. So can you talk to us about how you've developed these particular habits and how they've, you know, sh uh, changed over the course of these number of years as you are now at the uh, University of Delaware? Yes. Um, I want to uh, respond first by, you know, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because my writing and my reading habits have drastically changed. <laughs> they have drastically changed due to having two children since completing my, my PhD in 2018. You know, I had a small child. I had a, um, I, th uh, I guess he was almost one years old when I was writing my dissertation, but now I have two children. And so things have changed a great deal. So now I do a lot of my work on stolen time. Um, and I, I'll just say, don't, for, for everyone listening out here, don't uh, take for granted solitude. Don't take for granted quiet and, you know, space to call, uh, your own uh, and time to call your own. So for all my academic parents out here, especially mothers who have additional and you know physical attachments to young children, um, we really understand the ways that we don't all enter the work or the field in the same ways or evenly. Um, so there's been great change. Um, there, there are so many hidden worlds of work that mother scholars and parent scholars are, are doing and navigating all at the same time and trying to accomplish so much at the same time, um, especially in this pandemic. People are locked in, sometimes with small children. Um, but getting to this question, there, there are some things that have really remained the same, um, but some things that have, changed, uh, that have changed as far as how I'm approaching uh, my work. But I think I've, I've always been very self-protective around my time. Um, and very intentional about setting time and carving out time, like designated times to spend on my own stuff, my own questions, my own uh, yeah, pieces of, of literature that I need to read and my own writing. 
So carving out regular times um, to devote to your own thing is, is, is a practice that I really, really developed at Berkeley um, because I had awesome mentors like Eula Taylor um, and like Stephen Small. Um, and they made space and time to discuss some of these strategies. But I learned to identify what times I am most intellectually generative um, in terms of writing. And that time for me is first thing, writing early in the morning. Um, so writing my dissertation looked like early rising. It looked like early rising and working steadily, um, you know, maybe in, late into the afternoon. I, I can go. I can go for long periods of time. I know you had mentioned offline that um, you, you need a little break with some music and stuff like that. But um, I, I can really go for long periods of time. And so I've had to adapt to the change in my, you know, having a family um, around breaking that up. Um, so adaptability has been really key, I think, to maintaining productivity. Um, but I still do my early rising. I still do my early rising. But now it's a little earlier than before. And we could just say the sun may not be up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I maintain that regularity. And I think it's about setting intentions and um, and keeping them and, and uh, maintaining the, in, the intention and the plan. Um, and I, uh, yeah. I've also learned that you can you can book or, or schedule yourself and calendar yourself into your uh, your 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 week or your day in a way where if someone asks you to do something, uh, you can say, you know, I I have this this I have, I have a meeting, and the meeting is with you to get your work done. Ooh, and, uh, okay. that is that, that is a strategy that you can I, that I have begun you know really using more, but things that I picked up in, in grad school that, you know, are even more so important now that I have uh, so much more on, on the plate in front of me. Look, let me, look, I'm look from, from, from your mouth to, to, to my schedule, because that is some next level (laughs) advice. And I know my grad students, you know, whose time is always fleeting, uh, please. and, And everybody, not just grad students, but uh, please, please take heed to what Dr. Golden is laying down for us. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I got. Oh, I, you want me to do something? Nah, fam, I got a meeting. I got a meeting. <laughs> a meeting That's with real. my bed. A meeting with my bed and the back of my eyelids. So my okay. bad. I'm going to cite you on that one. I'm, I'm not going to cite you on that one. That's, that's a McNeil special right there. I ain't going to cite you on that one. That is hilarious. <laughs> that, that meeting, you better be doing real work, though. That's actually the funny thing. It's like, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. There have been times where I've said something to that tune, and I feel bad because every minute that I'm, every second that I'm not doing the work, I'm thinking like, you know you're supposed to be doing. I'm like, hey, bro, get off my, get off my back. Get off my back, bro. <laughs> no, but 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 that that's that's some good advice, though. Um, and, and so you know, once again, your amazing article, um, "Armed in the Great Swamp," is in an amazing journal, the Journal of African American History. And as was stated before in my previous article, article in my see articles on my mind in my previous interview, um, with your Berkeley uh, family, uh, Dr. Jarvis Givens. Obviously about Carter G. Woodson, as well, you know, the founder of the journal, and so I think it's very fitting that that we get to have this transition from from him to you. 
Um, so if you do not mind me asking, of course, was there a particular reason why you wanted um, Armed in the Great Swamp to actually be published in the Journal of African-American History? Yes, yes, there was. And no, I don't mind you asking that. That's a great question. And um, shout out to Jarvis and to his brilliant work, Fugitive Pedagogy, uh, which I'm really looking forward to reading. I'm very proud of him and to follow behind him um, um, in terms of who you've been interviewing and uh, most recently. All right. So to answer this question, um, to be perfectly honest with you, ultimately, Adam and all listening, I am doing this work for Black folks. I'm writing about this formative history of Black resistance, which is a 400-year-old struggle that begins here in the context of colonial and antebellum slavery. But I'm writing about this for Black people. And I'm writing um, not only for us now, uh, but for ancestors, uh, for the actual lives of Black historical subjects, which I value um, and I think we all should value. Just as we say, you know, Black Lives Matter right now, um, what's at stake for me in this work is that Black lives have mattered at all times and Black lives matter at all times, whether or not we know their names or whether or not they've been named in the records we're reading or whether or not uh, they wrote down their thoughts. And despite um, all of the limitations that we face in retrieving their stories, you know, I'm working to make sure that those stories are being told um, and that their experiences are um, are, are being valued and their contributions are being valued. Um, just like I'm working to say, as Abdegger did and uh, others like John Hope Franklin have done, that we need to pay attention to all of the ways that enslaved people responded to bondage, including those overt and often violent forms of resistance. Um, enslaved people in this country did not only practice everyday forms of resistance and quotidian uh, resistance practices. And we know that there is so much literature on these forms of day-to-day agency and resistance. Um, So there is, in a a sense, a corrective element to what I'm doing that seeks to say marinage, combat, force, you know, embrace, embracing force, um, conspiracy and rebellion those are also all part of United States history and the history of North Carolina and Virginia in particular. And so um, in thinking about this corrective element, um, as Jarvis has discussed with you and as Marable writes about um, as being one of the three central uh, objectives or mainstays of Black studies, right, the descriptive, corrective, and prescriptive, the corrective is part of what's at the heart of Woodson's, um, arguably his most read in his greatest book, The Miseducation of the Negro, uh, where he's saying Black people are being conditioned to be dependent people uh, by this miseducation and that Black people are being taught to believe they are inferior and that they can't do for themselves, which we know are are fictions. Um, And I think, um, right. And I I think highlighting and emphasizing uh, this history of the Maroons who are self-freed and independent people, communities. Um, That's part of a tradition set by Woodson and the Journal of Negro History, the Journal of African American History, to produce scholarship um, that serves Black people, uh, to produce scholarship that is committed to telling stories about or um, to articulating Black people's truths. Um, And also that's committed to expressing Black people's values, whatever those values have been in a given moment. And in my case, there are values like self-determination 
and like community, like autonomy, uh, like mobility. Um, so there really would be no better fit, I think, for Armed in the Great Swamp. Uh, I, I'm I, again, it's it's a it's a great honor to have contributed to Black Studies and to this journal in this way. And I'm not even finished. I haven't even written this book. It's not completed. Um, I got I got places I got to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last point I would make on this, uh, Abdecker, who I've mentioned now a couple of times, his chapter that I mentioned earlier on Maroons, um, that's the first scholarly writing on Maroons in the United States. And it was published in the Journal of Negro History in, 1930, mm-hmm. in 1939. So there's really just no better place for for this work um, in its current form. So, yeah, thank you for that question. Hey, look, see, it, it's, it's amazing. It is so amazing to hear your, you know, the be- just, just straight the beginning. I'm mm-hmm. right for black folk. Boom. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Um, yep. And to connect it um, historically to Aptheker's work, because at any time you, you know, were to do any research, um, just even just straight Google, his work, you know, yep. exactly. And so, um, so just thinking about his work and connecting it to yours across literally almost a hundred years. Right. And so it, it's just, it's a beautiful, um, connection. And in particular, mm-hmm. just looking at, um, on the day that, you know, Jarvis is, uh, uh, doing the, the Asala PBS books talk with, uh, yes. Brandon Terry and Cornell West, uh, earlier or later today, I think at 8 p.m. Um, tonight. But it's just, it's just, it's just so wild, right? All the like, all the things that are connecting as we're talking right now at 1:37 p.m. on a on a Tuesday, right? <laughs> so, so it's just, yes. it's just such, um, such a lovely uh, display too. And so, you know, yes. as, as you see, inserting Birdman hand rub right now. Uh, <laughs> well, it is time to, you know. Let's take a step into the swamp, Doctor Golden. Let's right. let's do it. Let's do our let's do our two step up in up into that place. And so, okay. in, so in your article, insurgent ecology is used as a conceptual space and framework for understanding black politics and black resistance, primarily in northeast uh, North Carolina and southeast Virginia. Mm-hmm. How and why did you ultimately choose this particular framework for your article? Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so thanks for that because. The insurgent ecology is at the heart of the whole uh, piece. And um, I'll just say, I'll I'll begin here. So um, in the stories I'm telling about the Great Dismal Swamp, there are three main actors. Okay. The first is the enslaved and the maroons that the enslaved become. The second actor is the enslaving class or the enslavers. And the third actor is this swamp, is the swamp itself. Now, coming to understand that the swamp is a force of its own, it required that I uh, actually went there. It required that I actually, you know, go and encounter this space. Uh, so anything I read, books on the topography of the swamp, uh, any writings, colonial writings um, on the swamp, descriptions about the ecological features, of the swamp and its wildlife and its geography that could not have prepared me for what the swamp actually is. Did you end up visiting? See, here's the thing. I was <laughs> not able to, but, but, but okay. I'm actually, um, once the, once this grading kerfuffle is over 
and yes. I kind of get settled here in the home, I'm actually going back uh, for another, uh, pro- probably about another month to do research, but okay. I won't have the responsibility. So I'm going to be. All right. Yeah. You got to make a, a, a detour yeah. and go down there. Uh, for sure, because you will um, begin to experience, I think, really, because it's an experience, what yeah. it is and what it is like, um, as you imagine what it would have been like. Um, and so when I went, when I first went into and forayed into this swamp, it was 2013. And I would just say I was not ready. Let me tell you right now, I was not ready. <laughs> and I was going in with Dan Sayers. He was the head mm-hmm. archaeologist um, in the Great Dismal Swamp Landscape Study which was a dig in this swamp, in a remote area of the swamp in Gates County, North Carolina. And the dig went on uh, from 2005 to 2013, I think it was. Um, But I joined his archaeology students in venturing into these uh, really hard, uh, hard to access places in the swamp. Um, And so I I just, I will say I, I had never in my life seen swarms of mosquitoes as big and as dense, like it looked like a cloud, um, as when I went into that swamp with with the field school. Uh, we had to walk about a mile, I think I would say, um, in the like muck and the water through the swamp in order to reach these drier islands where the dig was actually taking place. Um, and it was very, it was difficult to do. Um, there were you know, spiders in there that were as big as your hand, Adam, I'm telling you, they were walking on water, you know, it's the still water. It was, it was very intense. It was a very, I'm from Oakland, California. Okay. You talking about Jesus spiders? Look, I don't, I don't know why they (laughs) saved that on Noah's Ark. They should have left that, but that's another. There, I mean, the place is teeming with wildlife. I mean, there's, there's noise of birds and bugs and um, and reptiles. There's there's constant uh, rustling of, of of thick brush. It's a dense place. Um, it's also beautiful, but uh, I didn't care for all of the the insect life. I'm sure you might imagine, but yeah. uh, it's it's a place that's alive. It's a living place. Um, there's plenty of snakes, as Harriet Jacobs attested to in her narrative, because uh, she spent some time in Snaky Swamp, which is um, at the 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 southwestern end of the swamp, um, lots of poisonous snakes are there. I, um, I think I actually had to sign an acknowledgement that stated I understood the risks involved in participating in this dig. So this is an intense place, mm-hmm. and it, it took it took encountering it to understand the gravity of the place. Um, the water is mostly still. It's also black, so you can't see the bottom of the ground when you're walking through the mire. Um, it's a very difficult place. So, you know, and we had protective gear on. We had, you know, fish waders and uh, gear. But you can imagine what it would have been like for people without gear who are mm-hmm. in flight, right, who are, who are trying to forge new lives through this place um, and going up against this place um, in that pursuit of, of um, a free life. Um, And so in some ways, my dissertation through the muck and mire really anticipated my use of this framing of the insurgent ecology, especially um, after I had gone there and and was finishing this dissertation. Um, I was really compelled by the landscape of the swamp and the ways that um, uh, in spite of its difficulty, in spite of, of the spatial challenges of the swamp, people navigated it anyway. 
and, and they transformed it into a place that was self-serving. And uh, after visiting and encountering, and, and I guess I met the swamp, I met this character, this, uh, this actor of the swamp in, in the story I'm telling about the Great Dismal Swamp. But the impact of the space itself was just so intense that I began to consider reading the swamp itself as an alternative archive. Um, the insurgent ecology is one way to consider the natural environment as a source for understanding more fully uh, the movement of Maroons, the paths that they took, um, where they walked, how they navigated, what they would have seen, um, what they would have smelled, how they would have or could have weighed danger in the swamp versus the danger that existed outside of the swamp. Um, also, what they would have eaten, what plants they would have used uh, to administer medicine or to treat themselves, and also what they would have been sipping on. Um, some of the archaeology has shown that uh, outside of outside of the uh, Dan Sayers dig, there's another archaeologist that showed that um, enslaved people nearby the swamp were um, picking wild blueberries and making a kind of liquor from it. So what was happening in the swamp? People are extracting the natural resources. Um, and, and also how their encounters, how enslaved people, or how the Maroons encounters with this wilderness refuge would have shaped their political thinking, their political mobility. So they're devising and they're strategizing um, and not just their physical mobility, literally moving and, and, and walking and running, um, but also using the swamp to devise radical action plans. Those were things that I was interested in. Um, so the insurgent ecology, which, I, and I'm going to admit, this is a somewhat evolving concept for me as I continue working through it. Um, and this was the first time that I had put it on paper. So I, I hope it's useful, but I'm, I'm still developing it. Uh, but I define it as um, an environment rich with opportunities and possibilities for resisting and defying white control and authority, just like it, you know, just as it is an environment that becomes a space of insurgency through the self-protective actions of Maroons and the enslaved. Um, and it's a way to think about the ways that Black people's self-serving relationships with the natural environment mark an insurgency against white control, against the settler state, against racial capitalism that seeks to commodify Black people as chattel and use their laboring bodies to really destroy the earth, um, to build canals and drain swamps and clear forests and toil on plantations. So Maroons, generally speaking, they're defying and refusing all of this um, by rejecting the plantation world altogether. But then they also reject it by withholding their labor from these destructive projects. Um, or withholding their wombs from these destructive projects safe inside of this swamp. And there's a, a, a highly recommended article by that's also, I think, 2020 by Crystal Eddins um, about how maroon women. Yes. Oh, uh, my you gosh. You've seen that? Okay. She, she, okay she's, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you on that already. But yeah, I mean, it's about how maroon women are are committing a kind of double insurgency as they withhold their future. The, the, they, they withhold the future increase um, and wealth from and labor force from from the slaveholding power. Um, and she's looking at Haiti, but but these are all transgressive acts. These are all insurgent acts. Um, just as using the swamp to deliberate actual rebellion is insurgent. Um, and so thinking about the insurgent ecology, I think, speaks to how the swamp itself provides 
a way for Black people in the Tidewater to engage in a whole range of resistant practices and make these kinds of political critiques by way of the swampscape. So I'm inspired by scholars like Chelsea Frazier. I'm, ins I'm inspired by scholars like J.T. Rohn, who are doing work on Black ecologies and are urging us really to think about uh, the ways that Black people's relationships with the environment has not always been a bad one. It's not always been devastating or exploitative or depriving, but it's also been empowering. It's also been beneficial and, like I said, self-serving. So the Maroons are fully using the swamp with all of its abundant life. And I talked about how it was terrible and there's all these bugs and, you know, that's real. But think about what it yielded and what it lended in terms of resources and a way of creating another kind of life, a way of devising, planning and having and hosting independent activities um, that were subversive. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, I, the concept also responds to questions raised by Catherine McKittrick and Stephanie Camp, um, who also have asked us to think about how Black people navigate and claim space or change space uh, in order to make their own choices and determine their own outcomes, create their own spatial orders. So the, ins the insurgent ecology, as I continue processing it and, and writing about it, 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 it also responds to these kind of spatial questions um, about how Maroons transform the space into this rival geography as Camp has called it. Um, so, and then on the other hand of that, and I'll, I'll wrap this down, but on the other hand of that, for enslavers, the insurgent ecology is a living landscape of great anxiety. And it's really a spatial order that threatens to undo white power. Um, and so it signals a space of fear and anxiety for enslavers. And this is in large part because black people's, because of how black people have used the swamp. Um, and they have made it a site of rebellion. Um, so those are some of the ways I'm thinking about this is uh, the insurgent ecology is a way to understand the ecological underpinnings of maroon resistance. It, yeah. it, oh my gosh. Look, I look, you, ooh, there's so much, there's so much. <laughs> um, so you, you invoke uh, JT. So another person who I had on the podcast last year um, to talk about the Todd water and, and his, um, his matriculation through, um, you know, his work as a, as a, as a scholar of black ecologies, but he didn't know this, but he tweeted yesterday, a section of your, um, of your article. And it's, it's interesting it, because okay. yes, I kid you not. I kid you not. We were literally talk. Uh, he, he tweeted about it yesterday and right on. and it's it's fascinating so um he 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 uh he particularly got it let me see let me see all right i got the quote so this actual quote <laughs> all maroons were insurrectionists regardless mm -hmm. of their actual relationship to armed self-defense or violent revolt end quote mm -hmm. Catherine mm -hmm. benjamin golden and j.a history and wow. so yes and and the and the wild part, this Negro had no clue. Yeah, that you know, I was interviewing you, <laughs> and he tweeted that out 19 hours ago. I'm just so happy that it's getting read in the, in these ways, and it, it it's this work it's is getting to the people that it needs to get to as we continue. I mean, we're JT does work on the tidewater. And, you know, this we, we need more studies 
um, troubling the relationships and, and calling into question the relationships between Black people and the land and, um, and the natural environment in empowering ways and also ways that have been oppressive. Um, mm-hmm. So so I'm, I'm happy to hear that. But yes, he, I'm glad he retweeted that. Yes, all Maroons are, are insurrectionists and that is the realist. There it is. And so, and so, you know, this isn't on the roster, but this is a question that came about when you're just discussing um, Black ecologies. So is your, I, I see this article in your broader project about, or it, detailing not only Black resistance, but also in early African-American environmental history as well. Mm-hmm. So my question then, going returning back to your own um, intellectual genealogy here for a moment. Do you see Maranage as your entry point into um, discussions about ecology and environment? Or was there something else that, you know, in your own biography that provided another potential entry point to? Because I know that you said that you, I believe, are from uh, the Oakland, California um, yeah. area with yep. family in the Suffolk and Norfolk area. So I, I'm wondering, were any of these, and I know this is on the spot here, but were there anything, was there anything else in your own intellectual biography before Maranage that may have been another entry point into this work? I'm, I'm very fascinated. That's that's an interesting question. You know, listen, the my family um, out here, I, I well, first of all, I, my uh, it's my paternal aunt who married into um, Norfolk based family. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of later in my life that I became introduced to these landscapes of, of slavery and, and visiting, uh, you know, former plantations and seeing what's left on the land as far as slavery. And I was really interested in that all along. Um, I did, I didn't, I didn't connect though to um, relationships between, between black folks and black folks history and the land really, I will say honestly, until I began thinking about maroons and the use of the natural environment um, as the ticket, you know, out of being in in bonds and being um, confined, contained in these plantation spaces. That was really the way that I did begin to think about black geographies, black ecologies. Um, I was doing work at Berkeley with Carolyn Finney, um, who has she's she's no longer at Berkeley. But uh, black faces, white spaces, and her work around black people's relationships with the great outdoors, and how black people have been excluded from the from the great outdoors. But uh, uh, you know, doing my dissertation and doing that work at Berkeley, I you know began to think more about the fact that black folks have always had a kind of deep care and harmonious relationship with the natural in- environment, even though that uh, interaction comes in the context of captivity um, and despite that. Um, but yeah, I think that those questions really did for me take more and more root in my thinking again, after going to this swamp. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that would be how I, how I respond to that. Yeah. There's not too much interesting background okay. I don't think I, more, more than that. But. Okay. No, I, I was just curious because I was like, um, you know, there, there's always this perennial debate about, you know, the self in the work um, mm-hmm. and, and where that comes from. And so I was wondering, as you were discussing um, about whether or not there was another element. Um, but then also, you know, you had go, this goes more to your dissertation. You discuss memory and talk about actual like p- 
public history sites. Yes. And I don't know if I ever told you this in any of our uh, prior correspondence, but I actually used to work um, at Shingatig National Wildlife Refuge up the eastern shore um, really? with the okay. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm-hmm. And so I worked for a summer um, in, in on the eastern shore of Virginia. And it's interesting because you, when you discuss uh, having before never seeing, uh, you know, almost oh, yeah. the 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 flies and and the mosquitoes damn near blanking out a whole area um of your site <laughs> that was i had never seen a, a horse fly before right Sucker almost took a bite out of crime out of my neck oh my was, god for real and so yes and so you know just looking back and your answers made me think a lot more about my own experiences in the work um and also how you described insurgent um ecologies as well helps me to also think about, for my own work, uh, I'm trying to grapple with Black women's own understanding of, of space and, and use of their own mobility for their own freedom uh, mm-hmm. dreams as well. And in particular, because how often do we hear about, you know, Black women either not running because they have fit, uh, children in tow, right, um, right. but then also right. they're able to circumnavigate, um, mm-hmm. you know, so so that's, so, yeah. so your work is helping me so much right now. And and black women still run. Black women still run, even though they run less. Yes, mm-hmm. but they, they still do. And part of my, my book project is looking very closely at black women's relationship with fugitivity and marinage and black women's roles in, in maroons, in, in these maroon communities that I'm looking at. Um, there's a couple of accounts where women are, um, you know, mentioned as being seen and spotted. And there's one really glaring account um, of a kind of violence that uh, seemingly black women are involved in as well. Um, So there's this older woman in one account uh, that's, and I'm not sure, I don't think that I mentioned it in the article, but it's 1823, actually it's 1818 and it's in Princess Anne County. And there's um, this old woman who ends up being um, killed after uh, authorities of Princess Anne County discovered this group of this rather sizable group for for uh, for this uh, fringe maroon group. This is I think I think it's like twenty three people, and um, there was a woman that was associated with the leadership of this of this group. So we're thinking about age as well. You know what does it mean that this is an older woman and the only woman listed in this maroon group? But we know that in other maroons uh, across the hemisphere. Um, women, and especially, you know, we can think about Queen Nanny, but older women are, are take up a, a kind of political military um, leadership. And I, 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 I'm thinking about how we can use the comparative for analyzing that particular instance. But certainly women have a role in these maroon communities of the Great Dismal Swamp. And that work has not, those questions about women's um, unseen labors within um, the activities of these maroons, those questions have not really been sat with in a study yet. So that is also, so we do need to talk because you are doing similar work in a similar area. So we will continue. Hey, turn up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> See, you know, Delaware, man, shout out Dr. Hicks, Dr. You know, oh, Dr. Yeah. Maloba, Dr. Barber, yeah. the whole crew over there in Africana studies, man, y'all are amazing people. And so, <laughs> You know, and obviously, Dr. Golden, obviously, you were part of that. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, 
So, you know, to, to move along a little bit, um, one of the areas that your article, I thought, was just so just like there, there's there's so many mind blowing like areas of it. But in particular, um, you show in vivid detail how enslaved people in the late 18th and early uh, 19th century engaged in armed and ideological warfare against their enslavers. Mm-hmm. And much of this warfare took place uh, uh, via sophisticated communication networks. Mm-hmm. How did enslaved rebels transport information across sometimes damn near hundreds of miles of terrain? Like, right. Yeah, it seems inconceivable, you know. Um, and I would say simply they did it with their bodies. Um, they Movement, mobility, maroons and enslaved watermen, who are largely the leaders of this particular rebellion, the Easter Rebellion, um, watermen. Um, but they are on the move. And uh, people are moving across this tidewater and across this great expanse of swamp. Um, and, and movement, that's really what is at the essence of marinage, mobility and free movement. So with their movement and the ways that they are navigating uh, the swampland, they're carrying with them information. They're carrying with them ways of knowing. They're carrying with them memories. They're carrying with them thoughts. Um, and sometimes they're carrying with them letters. So these watermen... Um, who really are the key to movement of information in this particular 1802 Easter Rebellion plot. Um, they're experts at not only, well, first of all, they, they're literate in the landscape, but they're also oftentimes lit- literally literate um, and have the ability to write down information and, and make messages legible on paper. But they are bringing with them these, these skills and, and these um, abilities. And they also are experts at navigating a really complex uh, and extensive system of rivers and and creeks and swamps. So through water and their expertise of of waterways, um, and also their abilities to to navigate by way of the constellations. Um, and, And so waterways signal mobility and so do their ability to look at the sky, the, the night sky. Um, and understand where to go. Um, but they're able to do these things expertly and, and clandestinely. Um, so they knew these veins of escape and they were able to bring uh, information along these riverways. Um, and then they also had many connections to stevedores and dock workers that also could pass on news um, and that also could harbor people. Um, and so all of these this is a, a matter of, of mobility and, and ability and opportunity. And I think that they, without their involvement in this, and really, again, because they are principally, this rebellion begins by these watermen, and it is really sustained by them, just as the, the swamp maintains a role in this as well, and so do the maroons, um, so, do, uh, so, so do certain maroon groups along the outskirts of the swamp. Um, but without the rivermen, the watermen, the rivermen, I, I, I question whether or not this would have happened in the way that it did, um, where this, where this uh, plot takes shape in, you know, Halifax County and makes its way all the way down around this swamp and uh, to the to the uh, southern tip of this the swamp right before the Albemarle Sound. Um, it it it. it, it it was really important <laughs> that these watermen were were involved in um, the passing of information that way. And the organization, like 
the way that you lay it out, I think, is a tour de force about how scholars can discuss the transformation of information or the transport, uh, the transportation of information um, along this particular highway, right? That that are the waterways, right, of the day. Yes. Um, that obviously calls, you know, the common wind and and, and other oh, yeah. uh, works into the fray here as well. And so to, to, to many people reading your article, uh, because they will download it, they will, <laughs> and they're going to engage in all that. So we're going to so look into Google Scholar's sided by, okay. and we're going to be bu- uh, uh, bussing, you know. <laughs> and so the question that I have for you is, um, did anything along the research process from dissertation to, you know, article to now you're working on the book? Um, and I believe you also have a, a chapter in the edited collection from uh, 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 South Carolina Press as well. So throughout right. this whole process, you know, I'll be doing my research um, <laughs> throughout this process. Did anything surprise you along the research process? Um, yes. Uh, you know, one of the biggest surprises was actually one of these letters. Ooh. So in the Birdie County Slave Records Collection at the North Carolina State Archives, there is an incredibly rare record that made my whole body kind of like shake just to encounter it and like feel the fire of that paper intact in its original form. And it was written by enslaved insurgents, by a enslaved insurgent, right? Um, I just didn't expect to find that in the collection. It hadn't been really explored by any of the scholars. Well, the main scholar, Douglas Egerton, that writes on the Easter Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a footnote. If I, because when I, when I, after I encountered it and I went back, I, I think I remember seeing that it was footnoted. But uh, it, it, it deserves a, a great deal of attention. I mean, it's, it's, the penmanship is clear and legible. I mean, that's that's just very, very rare. And I, again, could really feel the, the power of that document that survived. Um, but I mean, authorities found that letter in Virginia, but mm. then it, it ends up in the hands of officials in North Carolina. And word for word, it calls for liberty and equality. It called enslavers tyrants. Um, it confirmed great numbers of representatives from many parts of the region. So you just, you're, you're really looking at evidence of highly organized plotting mm. um, by, by way of, the, of this insurgent ecology. Um, and again, it's intact. So I, you know, I, I was very careful with it, but I, um, it was just not something that I, when I went there to the archives that day, I didn't think I would, uh, you know, find that in, you know, just in this stack of, of documents. So that that was surprising. Um, but it also, it demonstrates the kind of political awareness that an anti-slavery thought that mm. was really, really behind um, some of these efforts um, to organize rebellion in this, in this moment. And um, so, yeah, this was a really, it was a rare glimpse into the thoughts of those that I'm, you know, trying to uncover more about. And what it does is, too, um, as someone whose family is from North Carolina, um, uh, right outside of Wilmington in particular, 
Um, and so just it makes me think about how considering the time frame, mm-hmm. David Walker is definitely oh, yeah. like I, I've seen uh different dates estimates of when he was born, 1785. 1795, what have you. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. David Walker, to give an example of a, of a more well-known, right, uh, North Carolinian turned Bostonian, but just to kind of think about, like, what a history of, like, Black radical, like, late mm-hmm. 18th, early 19th century North Carolina, like, what that would look like, right? And this letter that you found in the archive is central as much as walker's appeal should be right and so this is just look and i already know people like oh snap man i need to i need to (laughs) slide over you know uh, to the archive down there and take a take a gander too but hey you don't have to to duke it out you know what i'm saying you already got (laughs) it up in the you know (laughs) you know the really sad thing is that right now uh those archives are closed and i'm I'm like i'm waiting so patiently for them to open as i'm getting my summer plans together amen i gotta i gotta go back um but yeah yeah Yeah, not um what when you talk about david walker i um and your your earlier question about how information gets passed, I was thinking about how David Walker um, had his pamphlet published and placed in people's um, uh, clothing, mm-hmm. and like, and then what, and then and and, and hidden in, in pockets because I think he had a um, he had a a clothing store. Yep. Yep. Right, and he's he's sewing these these letters, these pamphlets into that this political. Um, message to take on force and it gets spread across the South by way of these ports and by way of these uh, really strategic and ingenious ways of Mm -hmm. spreading information. So people found their ways. They found their ways. And I actually used to work. um, I've worked around the country with uh, the National Park Service and actually worked at Boston African American National Historic So that I did the Black uh, Heritage Trail tours and would discuss and, you know, take people at times by uh, the house that he and his mm-hmm. wife used to live in wow. next to uh, Mariah Stewart. Um, you know, two very, obviously, uh, fairly well-known uh, um, Black activists. And so um, in terms of radicalism, and Lord knows we need the the spirit of, of the ancestors on this one. So since initially uh, I reached out to you for this interview, Northeast North, Northeast North Carolina has very much been in the news. In particular, mm-hmm. for deadly reasons. Since the murder of Andrew Brown Jr. at the hands of local law enforcement. Um, and so yeah. since uh, uh, Brown Jr.'s murder, activists on the ground have been fighting for the release of, for example, body cam footage in particular and justice for Andrew Brown Jr. in general. As someone that writes about Black resistance and marinage in the nearby Dismal Swamp, and for those listening that may want to connect with the spirit of insurgent ecology you demonstrate in the article, is there a story that sticks out most that you want to share for the audience? Yeah, let's let's definitely connect with the spirit of insurgency in this moment, um, for real. So Elizabeth City, I mean, um, the swamp is, I, I was telling my husband when I first saw the footage of Andrew Brown and you know his sons and his family and all of the protests, I was like, that's the swamp. That's the swamp. Um, and I can't help but um, see 
Elizabeth City as very connected to the history of the Dismal Swamp. This is a rural town. It's the biggest town around, but it's very rural. Um, and it was historically surrounded by nothing but swamp. Um, so in terms of insurgency, uh, the story of Tom Copper is probably most demonstrative of this culture of defiance that I discuss and that I'm tapping into, um, especially relating to Elizabeth City. So Tom Copper has been written about by a number of scholars, however, very briefly, um, and few have properly placed Tom Copper within the context of the Dismal Swamp, except for, you know, my colleague, Marcus Nevius. He has done that. Um, he, he did mention and talk about Tom Copper as a maroon of the Dismal Swamp in his book, City of Refuge. Also, David Soselski does the same in Waterman's Song um, about maritime North Carolina. But others like Sylvia Dieff, who's written Slavery's Exiles, which is a really important book about United States Maroons. But she failed to see that Tom Copper is, in fact, part of the landscape of the Great Dismal Swamp, um, that his camp, quote, camp in, uh, uh, behind Elizabeth City is, in fact, in the swamps behind Elizabeth City is, in fact, a part of the Great Dismal Swamp landscape. And I think people who don't study the swamp itself, they, they fail to see how vast it was. Um, it was 2,000 square miles. That's the size of this state of Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, that's huge. And so people that aren't studying the landscape of the swamp aren't really understanding, I think, how far it's sprawled and stretched and that this is one, you know, morass. Um, okay. So Tom Copper, he, in fact, did live at the southernmost end of the swamp, right as the swamp meets the Albemarle Sound. And the Pascatane County Minutes book, records that he was living in a swamp outside of Elizabeth City. So several other reports also confirm that. Um, And these reports are based on letters written by Elizabeth City magistrates and the militia captain, um, as well as other concerned citizens. And they get published in newspapers like the Virginia Gazette and the Norfolk Herald. And they're saying things like, we are all alarmed. You know, we're all under arms because of the outlaw, Tom Copper, who is living in one of these swamps. He's carried out quote, regular meetings, you know, they have organized in the swamp. This is the language that is written in these reports, that they have organized in the swamp and that they plan to murder all the whites, that murder is intimate. This is what's being written about Tom Copper. Um, And uh, these letters that are uh, written in a hurry in the middle of the night then are published in these local newspapers to give you a sense of the veracity of these letters um, that clearly show the alarm. Um, and, and the basis of the alarm uh, centers around this man, Tom Copper, and his and his maroon camp. But um, testimonies of, of those in his party, his, his camp of maroons, um, that are later, there are some that are later captured, and they reveal that Tom Copper uh, was in fact living there in the swamp. He was co- also communicating with enslaved people that were nearby the swamp. So he was moving in and out of the swamp. They also these testimonies also reveal he was literate mm-hmm. um, and he encouraged more enslaved people to join him. He already had a fortified camp in the swamp, but he was trying to get more. So he brought a paper with him in one of these um, exits and one of his exits of the swamp into the plantation world. And he brings this paper and he wanted people to sign this paper to, to pledge that he that they were going to work with him um, it, as a part of this Easter conspiracy. And 14 men actually signed the paper. And so the names are there. 
But uh, what ends up happening is that Tom Copper is discovered. We don't know exactly how, but he was being hunted. He was being searched for. Um, and then he gets brought into the courthouse. He is sentenced to death for malicious intent to insurrection. So um, he gets thrown into the Elizabeth City Jail. But shortly after that, six insurgents on horseback, they had stolen horses from the Elizabeth City authorities. They break into the jail and they manage to get Tom Copper out of the jail. And we know this because Tom Copper's name is not recorded again in the jail records after this attempts to after this break breaking in of the jail. Um, And so four of his rescuers were actually captured and the other two escaped with Tom Copper presumably back into the safety of the insurgent ecology of the Great Dismal Swamp. However, we don't, we, you know, we don't know exactly what their fates were. And this is really probably one of the only times, the few times when we're going to cheer in archival silence. Mm. So not all archival silences are bad. And so Tom Copper's victory and his continued evasion and escape, that means an omission in the dominant record. But I'm really not mad at that omission. So I'll just leave it right there. Ooh. That Hopefully that is an empowering story of insurgency in this swamp and in, in, in the history of Elizabeth City. It's amazing. And, you know, uh, a good colleague of mine, Dr. Hillary Green, uh, used to teach at um, Elizabeth City State University oh, yeah. at HBCU. And just to kind of think about, like, on the map, just like you said, like, it's, it's the main, you know, city, uh, quote unquote, in the area. And mm-hmm. just to kind of think about um, the rel- uh, relative uh, remoteness, but also just thinking about how in this moment where we need all of the stories that that you are bringing to bear here and, and, and this power and the spirit and the vitality of um, the insurgent ecology that you bring to bear. And I know someone's getting their life today, uh, <laughs> you know, so 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 I feel that. I feel that. And I know the listeners are as well. Um, and so as we pivot towards the last uh, couple questions here, uh, you know, once again, thank you for taking the time. You know, I know it's the end of the semester. And so, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's a lot going on. So so I'm glad that you're taking the time to, to, to spend with me and our listeners Absolutely. on today. Yes. Um, and so in a major way, you expressed to us the power of storytelling and how stories can light our path forward to a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. which is what happens in your classroom at UD all the time, or so I've heard. Um, <laughs> so one of my good friends, hey, Michaela Harden, I know you're listening. Um, hi, you know, Michaela Harden. <laughs> <laughs> she speaks so damn highly of you. And as a result, um, I want to ask a question about teaching here. Okay. What methods do you utilize in your classroom to discuss the history of Maranage and, and Black resistance in general? And especially when many students before walking into your class on day one might not even be able to pinpoint where the dismal even is, right? So, so I'm right. very much inter- interested to know how you uh, discuss this history of violence and this history of destruction and Maranaj mm-hmm. and, and, and Black humanity at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, hardly any of my students ever have heard of the Great Dismal Swamp um, at any of the institutions that I've been at. Um, I taught a course on Maroons in the United States uh, when I was at Stanford doing the postdoc. Um, and we spent an entire week looking at the Great Dismal Swamp, um, an entire week of discussions. And I always bring in photography 
of my own ambulatory exploration of the Great Dismal Swamp. Um, and that is a, an attempt to get students to engage with the intensity of the swamp ecology and the landscape. But it never does it justice, of course, because it's a photograph. And I've already explained to you how it's a living place, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but I feel like that is a way, that's one of the resources that I can bring in to understand this space. Um, I, I think um, it's important to highlight the multiple methods that are necessary uh, for beginning to tell the histories of Maroons. Archaeology is also huge, hugely, hugely important um, for getting closer to understanding how some of these Maroons lived and what kind of lives um, they were able to create. So I also employ and bring in archaeological findings and data and my experience um, participating in the archaeological methodologies of trying to understand enslaved and maroon um, life, um, and also the the internal dynamics of these maroon communities that we would otherwise not be able to talk about or not be able to have any finality of knowledge around um, how they lived, um, how their how their communities were actually set up and stationed. Um, archaeology has lent those insights. I also teach with WPA narratives, um, speaking to uh, the creative and ingenious ways that enslaved people and maroons. Uh, are, 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 are trying to forge new lives. And there's this one compilation of WPA narratives, Weevils in the Wheat, which is all about Virginia um, and all about Virginia formerly enslaved people. It has a bunch of testimonies. And some of them include um, how uh, people's memories about how Maroons were a part of the landscape at all times, really not far from the swamp. Um, and how they, there's one account where someone is living underground and they had built this elaborate piping system so that they could maintain a fire underground. Um, and the pipe would lead the smoke from the fire far, far away from any pursuers. I mean, these are the kinds of stories that emerge from these WPA narratives that are really just vital to our understanding of the lengths and the, the, the resourcefulness and the resiliency of enslaved people to, do to to uh, practice uh, resistance and as assert their their full humanity, um, and so nothing really gets omitted. Nothing is off limits in my teaching, mm. you know. Th and that is really the beauty of Black Studies, you know, as an interdisciplinary home. Um, it's 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 just inappropriate and not useful for my purposes, for uh, the purposes of Black Studies, to not be able to use interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary methods in our approach to the history, because the goal is to more fully understand people's lives who never wanted them to be documented, who never wanted them to be discovered um, or, or known about. So, you know, when we're talking about Maroons who really tried to be evasive, uh, we need all of the methods and uh, methodologies we can in our arsenal. Um, so so I'm, I'm very interdisciplinary with it. Um, and in my courses on American slavery, early African-American history, I... I, of course, introduce students to the importance of thinking about space and the ways enslaved people navigate it and are shaped by it and create alternative landscapes um, in their own meaning and, and making um, and purposes and, and all of the things that I talked about earlier around um, the importance for thinking about geography and landscape and, and ecology as well. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think that that 
the, the, that these are great tools and openings into thinking about the practice of marinage and be, being able to understand how truancy in everyday forms of absconding can lead into these other more more bold forms of permanent evasion and permanent uh, flight and actual autonomous resettlement in in places like swamps and, and mountains and you know underground. So so yes, I, I I use it all. Love it and uh, and, and it's great because once again, you know I'm I'm so glad that you're at UD as they're you know finally getting off the ground. Their MA in Africana Studies. Oh yeah, so so yes. so so awesome. And, and for y'all looking for programs for those undergrads out there, for those looking to get their second masters, whoever you might be, look, something going on over at UD. Come, Come on through. through. Come on through. And if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the few funded master's programs as well. And so that that's something that, you know, as someone whose uh, MA was definitely uh, unfunded, uh, you <laughs> so know, mine was too look, as a result, yeah. I'm like, look, any place I can do that at the MA level, God bless. Them. And so, um, you know, so, so as, as we're talking about all these amazing stories, you know, obviously the last year and a half has just been, it's, you, sometimes you can't even put into words what this last year has Ooh, been, right? For real, for real. So when the going gets tough while reading, writing, and teaching the history of the Black world, along with the backdrop of when, you know, how we're doing all of this, of course, what refuels your tank and helps refresh your spirit? You know, and you're right, like, it's hard to even put in words how how hard it has been, especially for Black people, like, and just seeing all of the in-your-face, ongoing, you know, premature death, and and it's all on, you know, we have recordings and live footage. It's just, it's a lot while being quarantined, and everyone understands that, but that's very heavy on Black folks, and for me, who's doing work on um, people trying to uh, get away from the outside world, the dominant world of black suffering and death, it's also more heavy because I'm looking at an ongoing nature of anti-black violence. So it's, 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 it's been difficult, but you know, one thing I think about black people is we do not have a shortage of faith. Um, and we never have clearly based on the kinds of histories that we're, we're looking into and thinking about insurgency and, um, action, you know, faith in ourselves or faith in a higher power or faith in one another. Um, but I think faith is a principle um, that Black people have lived by across time. And I, I think I try to derive strength from the knowledge that those before me believed so deeply that they would be able to persevere or that they would be able to create the conditions for their own survival and well-being. Um, and that they actually did these things. And so I think I can, I get strength from that. That pushes me to be in a place where I can't sit or dwell too long in, in feelings of doubt or depletion. I mean, I really have no place to do so as a descendant of enslaved people. I, I, I really have no place in 2021 as unfettered as I am to feel diminished. Um, so I try to keep that in perspective and remember it's been so much worse for so, and there's been so, you know, so much more horrific and violent um, harm to to black folks. So, 
I try to uh, remember those things and and be guided by those by, by those realities. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try to drive strength in those ways, but also from my children who are also entirely encouraging. I mean, they are the future. And so I am encouraged by the prospect of the future. I'm all about the future. I'm a historian for the future. I'm somebody's mom for the future, you know, and that that just means to me that the links between the past and the present are continuous and inseparable. And we carry on legacies as well as we create them. So, you know, um, eyes on the prize and, you know, it's faith and, 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 you know, harnessing memory and, um, yeah, drawing strength from these amazing actions of those that came before. Thank you for that. That's a good question. I I, I try I try to make those happen every now and again. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> and so, um, you know, speaking specifically about the swamp and also to Elizabeth City, what did those two communities, right, mean mm-hmm. to you? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, uh, the Great Dismal Swamp is a landscape of Black power and Black self-service, Black self-reliance. And today, I think that power is largely untapped by descendant communities that continue to live there. And part of that is because of the Jim Crow era, uh, Jim Crow era violence and um, the terrorist activities of the KKK. That really actually changed the ways that Black people related to the swamp. So white supremacists after slavery ends, they literally are chasing people, terrorizing people, dumping bodies into the swamp, running people into the swamp in the 20th century. And many of the people I talked to and I mentioned I um, I, I, I met with and um, interviewed a lot of um, black descendant community members. And many of the things that they said were that this swamp becomes a space of black death. It becomes a space of of, 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 of really death, right, after the Civil War um, because of these kinds of terrorist campaigns of the KKK. Um, and it also becomes associated with backwardness where Black people didn't want to acknowledge any relationship anymore to the swamp after the Civil War um, or associate with, uh, with the swamp at all as they're trying to, after the Civil War, prove their worthiness of citizenship. You know, they're trying to be recognized as fully capable human beings. They're trying to be seen as uh, respectable. And this swamp was not seen as as respectable. This swamp is seen as the opposite of a civilized place. And so black people really stopped wanting anything to do. They, the, the need it no longer is there for them to be there in the same ways or use it in the same ways. And so black people's relationship with the Great Dismal Swamp has changed. And so uh, with the majority of local black folks that I talked to, living in cities like Elizabeth City or Suffolk and having no idea of what historically took place in their own backyard. I, I think that great things can come out of more efforts to make visible this history of the swamp in, in, on the landscape itself. And I'm, I'm given faith, you know, given a little bit of, uh, of, of hope by what the, uh, well, the Great Dismal Swamp study Heritage Act was passed by the House of Representatives in March. And now it's in the hands of the Senate to decide whether this act is going to recognize this swamp for the first time as a national heritage area. And that's going to be, that's very promising. Um, 
it looks like it could pass under a Biden administration. And I think that will be very good for the current landscape of the swamp. In terms of reckoning with the history of slavery in a very public way, um, and it also in terms of saying that we as a collective, you know, locally and nationally recognize the value of freedom struggle and the actions of Maroons that took place in the swamp, uh, so much that we would designate it as a heritage area. So the plan is to erect new signs and markers and interactive self-guided tours about the history of the Maroons at various locations in the swamp. And I think that that will convey a public facing message about why this swamp is so important um, and about the, the cultural and the um, human history of the swamp, which is a black history. Um, so that would be, I, I think that that would be a very, I'm, I, I'm, I'm held by that idea that that, that, that is coming. Um, so, because black people express to me, descendant communities express to me anger that they didn't know about the history. You know, Ooh. when we're, when we're talking anger and resentment that it was kept from them in their words, you know, while they're growing up playing in the swamp and not having any understanding that this is a, a sacred site of tremendous resistance, um, and, and freedom struggle. So I think that those gestures that I mentioned um, around this Heritage Act could be helpful for doing something something uh, new and more and, and more beneficial to current descendant communities of the swamp. But but about Elizabeth City, you asked also, what does Elizabeth City mean to me? I mentioned earlier, it is the swamp for me. Um, but now you heard about Tom Copper and I've, I've talked about Tom Copper. But I, I you know, I want to begin addressing the import of Elizabeth City by asking, you know, why is it that 220 years after the Elizabeth City jail was full of Negroes in 1802, you know, following this conspiracy that I've outlined, mm-hmm. why is it that the current day Elizabeth City police is now executing Andrew Brown Jr.? And I think, and there is a direct connection between the history of state violence and the literal hunting down of black people in the period of slavery and this current police state and its regard, or really its disregard for black life. And we we recognize that slavery doesn't exist in the same ways anymore, but slave patrols, the Elizabeth City slave patrols and authorities, the, the militia captains, all, all of these forces are mechanisms of state control in the 19th century. And all of these forces of state control were after Tom Copper and the insurgents in 1802 in Elizabeth City for asserting their rights to be free. That was their crime, being black and not agreeing to be a slave. And being a slave is the proper location of blackness, according to the state. And so uh, they're in prison, but they escape in this incredible story. A few of them escaped. That is um, Tom Copper, but others didn't. Um, including someone named Mingo, different Mingo from the one in the article. Mm-hmm. But he does, he does not escape. He gets taken in by the Pascatank County authorities in Elizabeth City, and they subject him to the consequences of the law of 1741, which mandated that for his crimes, including perjury, um, they accuse him of perjury. And for those crimes, he was to be taken to the public pillory to stand for an hour with one ear nailed to a post, and then it was cut off. And then his second ear was nailed to a post and for another hour. And then it was cut off, followed by 39 lashes. And this is what happened to Mingo for his marinage and conspiracy with Tom Copper. And these are really 
emancipatory acts in just minds, but again, not in the eyes of the state. And so the whipping post and the pillory, uh, the slave pen, um, the shackle uh, become and evolve into instruments of the state that we now more readily recognize, like the handcuffs, the taser, right? The, the, the public pillory is now a crowd with cell phones. And of course, we have the prison. So I, I think we really need to understand what our relationship is with the state. And it's really meant violence against Black people, um, as well as dispossession of free life. And this is ongoing. And Elizabeth City is emblematic of this ongoing relationship. So, and, and the last thing I'll say about that is one thing I was really struck by was when I heard Andrew Brown's sons talk and they were weeping. And I mean, this is, this is traumatic to have to see over and over. But um, I looked and I saw that Andrew Brown's sons' names are Khalil Farabee and Jared Farabee. And if you remember from my article, I introduced the Maroon Bob Farabee, mm. who was in fact enslaved by a man named Matthew Farabee, not far from Elizabeth City. And, you know, he was executed, Bob Farabee, for, uh, he was accused of murder and, and uh, obviously for marooning. And he was executed in 1823. And, and last month, Khalil and Jared Farabee's father was also executed by the state of North Carolina. So, you know, I'm still, I, I'm, I, this, the connections here are just, Shit. Wow. they're just too, they're too much. They're, they're a lot. And, but it, it just calls to my mind the ways in which, Local Black folks are so connected to the histories that I'm unearthing. I mean, uh, the names, the Riddicks, the Grandies, the Farabees, those are all enslavers. But now there's a whole lot of Black people with those names in Elizabeth City and the Hampton Roads carrying those names. And um, and they're still facing the kinds of violence and, and continued hunting down of people, like in the case of Andrew, Jack, uh, of Andrew Brown, to serve a warrant. But these kinds of of attacks and, and violence are ongoing. And so, you know, it's, um, it's really disgraceful, but um, these connections are very evident to me as, as I'm thinking about Elizabeth city. And, and these are the things that I was thinking when, when seeing this city now in protest and under, you know, a kind of new energy of agitation against the state. Whew. My goodness, my goodness, my goodness, my Lord, my Lord. Dr. Golden, Dr. Golden, you are you you are painting a particular picture that I was I wanted you for the next one to paint a particular picture and you painted a really amazing genealogical picture for all of us to understand the role that state violence specifically in the state of North Carolina um that connects literally like you said 220 years. Yeah. Yep. And and to 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 think about that now is just mind blowing, and also one where you know we're we're definitely hoping that you know the families of uh, of and of Andrew Brown Jr.'s uh, uh, that that the uh, and, and that Brown Jr.'s family rather gets right. a hold of this interview so that you know oh. they can see that because <laughs> because here's the thing you you specifically said that a lot of the families a lot of the descended families in and of himself didn't know about the history of the swamp. Absolutely. So who's right. to say whether or not, because we all know that 1865 wall that most black folks uh, or 1870 wall uh, that a lot of black folks have in terms of um, genealogy, who knows if they even know. So we're mm -hmm. definitely going to have to 
uh, signposts mm-hmm. to, to the powers that be. Um, so in one of the, our last questions here, returning to writing for a moment uh, before we close up shop, as you might know from listening to one of my other interviews, I love asking my favorite historians or writers, you are definitely a part of that, uh, their own, you know, a- asking them questions about their own writing space and thinking space. If you had all the money in the world, a.k.a. money and issue, and you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space from scratch, what would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? Right? What And what specific sense, you know, uh, are, are, you, are, you, are you bringing in, right? It's ultimately, <laughs> paint the picture for the people, Dr. Golden. I really love this question. It's very fun. Um, well, you, you know, I may be boring to folks, but like my response is that it would literally be a place of solitude. <laughs> like Solitude <laughs> is so precious. Um, that would be most important to me. No interruptions, no crying small people. Um, I love them, but <laughs> I, I need no distractions, no nothing except me and, you know, this here laptop. Um, pictures, though, pictures of my ancestors, whom I was blessed to have known in my own lifetime, would be and are in this space here as well. Um, but, you know, people that have directly influenced my return to this period of our history, you know, this formative history of our captivity. Um, my grandmother was, and you've talked about geneal- genealogical thought and thinking, and yeah, and my gr- my maternal grandmother was a historian by her own right, and she did a lot of genealogy genealogical work. Um, and I think she, and I feel her often guiding the way that I do the work that I do. She was always very encouraging of, um, my return to this history where a lot of black folks don't want to talk about slavery or think about slavery and don't understand why I would. Um, but she really encouraged um, me to think about legacies and connections and the ways that foremothers and forefathers, um, provided for the next and, and carved greater spaces for for the next and then the next and you know here we are and um, so her picture is here that energy is with me as, when I'm writing and um, she uncovered so much about our family and how slavery has shaped our lives um, how we end up in, in particular places how we've moved across this country um, and so I think that 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 um, exercise that she did and and the and the the information it yielded for our family uh, made me understand what the history of slavery can do. Deep digging, deep digging into the history of slavery can do for black people as a whole. Um, so her, she's with me here. Okay. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess it would smell good because I got candles for days. I, I, hey. I don't know, but I got yeah, a candle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always have my candles. Um, <laughs> And so I got to have that. Uh, I like to feel a, a, a kind of warmth. And um, I am, um, yeah, apple scent is the one. Hey, there okay. we go. All right. But yeah, I guess that would be it. I mean, that's a fun question. Yeah, no. And, and my pandemic pickup, some people became like plant parents or whatever. For me, yeah. candles. I, I was more of an incense kind of kind of Negro at, at one point in my life. Oh my God. But now, uh, you know, I am it. Even when I know I'm not going to buy one, if I go into Target, if I go into Walgreens, CVS, I will always just browse, right? Just just, mm-hmm. just to see what what's there. Um, and so I'm I'm I live in the abundance of 
of uh, of various scents. And I'll tell you what, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, yo, they got. They do. They that's do. a kind of place to me. TJ Maxx and Target are akin to to or TJ Maxx and Marshalls are akin to Target because you walk in saying I'm gonna get one thing and one thing only. Matt Adam, you I better know. only It'll get one. It'll and, and, get you. And so, uh, so yeah, so so that that's my thing. And so, last question here. Last question here. Big on music, and I know that you. I I I, I almost didn't want to even ask this because because you are a solitude person. But, <laughs> right. If we're trying if we're trying to create a uh, armed in the in the great swamp, fear ma- uh, maroon insurrection and the insurgent ecology of the great dismal swamp mixtape playlist mixtape and or playlist. What five to eight songs are you arming the people? Oh my with? gosh! <laughs> what songs Army. is on is on here? Oh my gosh! Okay, this question is actually really hard, um, but I can't. I, I I honestly cannot point to five to eight songs. Uh, but I will say they're whole albums. Okay, um, and, the, okay. and there are particular songs. There are particular songs off these albums. So when I was in the Dismal Swamp, and I say I was in it, but when I was living in Virginia Beach. 2015, um, the Ke- Kendrick Lamar's album um, To Pimp a Butterfly had just come out. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up playing a whole lot of The Blacker, The Berry. Mm. A whole lot. Mm-hmm. And um, that's probably my favorite song off that album, especially, and there's a point in it that I love the most. It's the jazz interlude at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a moment of peace, of soul in the midst of rage and in it, it, it it's a it's a calm break in the midst of sounds of confrontation like with with a world that hates you or with a world that devalues you or doesn't see you and so i'm thinking about that calm in the song in response to your question and 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 likening that calm in the song to spaces of peace and home that black people made in the swamp in the belly of the beast that wanted them enslaved or wanted to hunt them you know or make them shadow so i would say that that uh, that is one of the songs that I actually listened to while I was there, but just I can think of it doing that doing that work and thinking about what maroons have done in the swamp. Um, but I listened to that that album a whole lot while I was in the field, and um, I mentioned jazz. So speaking of jazz, I love jazz music, and my grandfather was the first black disc jockey in San Francisco playing Ooh. jazz music at a top forty station. So. Um, I, I grew up on some some jazz, and so um, I would also say John Coltrane's articulation of love and resistance, love and resistance. Mm. So the, the the sounds of 1960s era resistance in a Love Supreme uh, by John Coltrane. I, I would I would I would I would say that I would definitely put that on the playlist. And um, we can think about Maranaj as a practice of love. I think. Ooh, yes, absolutely. Maranaj, um, a, a love supreme for one another. A love supreme of one's community so fiercely, right, that you're going to protect it at all at all causes and be willing to um, uh, embrace a philosophy of force to to borrow from Kelly Carter Jackson mm-hmm. and, and her work on on uh, on black folks, black radical abolitionists and their embracing of the philosophy of force. Um, but that's a practice of love, right, for freedom and for one another. Um, and I, I guess last I would say. Both of the years that I was, 2013, 2015, that I was living around the swamp, um, I also listened to J. Cole a great deal. J. Mm. Cole's music gave me life. 
um, it's music that gave me a feeling of the soul of the place that I was in because he's from right. North Carolina. Right, right, um, right. Fayetteville, right? Um, and that is, you know, by today's standards, that's not too far. I, am I right? You know North Carolina more than I yeah, do. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. My family's okay. from not far from Fayetteville. So, like, I, yeah, it's not, it's not far. It's not yeah. far. But that, I mean, um, especially Forest Hill, Hills Drive, that feels like escape music to me. Mm. Like it's music of defiance too, um, but the defiance, the version of defiance is definitely a masculinist version. And I'm thinking about songs like G-O-M-D, which mm-hmm. I'm not going to spell out, but you know, um, that is definitely a masculinist version of defiance, but it's, I feel it. And it's, it's also escape music and it's, it's also reflective music. Um, it's also speaking to the intellectual labor of struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's at stake in, in why you're fighting? Or why you're struggling, you know, he articulates these things. So why do you, what do we yearn for? What do we imagine? Um, It's all there in his music. And so I would say his music. I would say uh, Forest Hills Drive. And then there's one song, which no one ever gets why I say it's my favorite song off that album. It's the intro. It's barely a song, but I'm telling (laughs) you, I'm telling you, whenever I have had, uh, since it's come out and since I've, I've, you know, I knew about it whenever I've had something really hard to do, really, uh, I knew it was going to take everything in me to, to, to accomplish and to get through. I have listened to that song. Um, it is a battle ready song. To mm. me. So when you're thinking about a dismal swamp armed in the great swamp playlist, I would say that song. Um, and I can't really articulate why just, you have to listen to it. And maybe maybe I, you'll feel big on that. Maybe you hey, will. Maybe you won't. Hey, you know, it, I I love it. I love you know you know I, I gotta you know as someone who grew up in, in the South in a particular era for me you know Pastor Troy you know I always think about uh, <laughs> you know uh, uh, little Scrappy Trillville. Oh my god! <laughs> Never ever. Oh man, it was a two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay, see, yes, the playlist <laughs> is getting better. The playlist is getting better. Look, look I'm just I'm, look, I'm just. You know, I'm just thinking right now, or uh, or to go to Virginia, in particular clips, uh, uh, grinding. You know, so thinking about, you know, the the thinking. You know what's interesting? Oh. Thinking about the escape when I was a kid, I, I never could do it. But those kids who could take, you know, a pencil and beat on the desk and just like, and just have the have you know, typically that's how rap battles would, would begin, and so. Thinking about that as a mode of escape for black kids growing up mm. in a particular area, and you know, grinding was a particular. If I'm if I remember, grinding was a particular song that people did like the the beat to, and so to to imbibe like to bring you know a full scope Virginia up in the thing. Oh yeah, you know what I'm saying so like yes. I, I love I love what we're doing here, and the okay, good thing gonna, is I'm it's gonna, gonna add, be more. I'm gonna add Petey Pablo. Okay, yo, yo <laughs> look. No Carolina, come on and raise us. Okay, uh, I mean, it's around here swinging like a helicopter. Yes. No Oh man, come on and raise up. You know, it's funny. Anytime my family and I would drive, especially after the song came out, anytime my my family and I were about to cross from South Carolina into North Carolina, That's you already knew. You're oh gonna my get gosh. it. My, my my brother and my mama, they knew. Cue yes. it up. We about yes. to go in. And yes, ain't nobody taking their shirts off in the moment. 
But well, we do got yeah. a shirt and we swinging it around like a helicopter because we represent for North Carolina and we standing up. This one's for Lift Stop. And so, look, Dr. Golden, I did not expect us to be here this long, but that's a great thing. Oh my God. Sometimes I don't even know how long it was, but okay. We still yes. on. We still on. And so, great. thank you so much for coming on here. And if y'all have gotten to this point in the interview and you don't know who we're talking to, let me tell you who. This person is none other than Dr. Catherine Benjamin Golden, author of Armed in the Great Swamp, Fear, Maroon Insurrection, and the Insurgent Ecology of the Great Dillswood Swamp. And she's representing Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. Shout out to Dr. Hicks. Shout out to Dr. Maloba. Shout out Absolutely. to Dr. Uh, um, Barber. Barber. Shout, shout out to the whole crew over there. Okay. And thank you so much, Journal of African American History for putting this amazing article out because we're, we're feeling the spirit right here. We okay. feeling it. We well, feeling thank it. you, Adam, because I, I, I again, I, I really just appreciate this conversation. I had fun with this conversation and just, you know, giving the Dismal Swamp a little more attention and giving this work a little more attention. So thank you very, very much for all that. You're so welcome. And y'all, as you're putting together your syllabi of early African-American history, make sure to include this amazing article as you're putting works that we had talked about before, like Kelly Carter, Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson's work, Force and Freedom, and the forthcoming Surviving Southampton that oh, yes. Dr. Uh, Vanessa, Vanessa Holden is yes. dropping. Look, it's about to change lives. July yes. 2021, pre-order, Ooh. University of Illinois Press. She going to be on the podcast. Better right. believe, because okay, I truly believe all three of these works tell us together just such an amazing story of Black resistance and yeah. Black familial connections that mm -hmm. span this over 200 plus years that bring us in here today that will provide so much to our spirit as we move on and as we fight for justice for so many people, including Andrew Brown Jr. down in Elizabeth City. And so, y'all, this is Adam McNeil, host of New Books in African American Studies. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Please do so. And so until next time, I'm once again your host, Adam McNeil of New Books in African American Studies. Shouts out to Dr. Golden again. Go, go download the article and see, see y'all next time. Over and out. <laughs>